Hi, I'm Ed Whittingham, and you're listening to Energy vs. Climate, where my co-hosts David Keefe, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and I debate today's energy challenges, highlighting the Albertan and Canadian context. If this is your first time joining us, Energy vs. Climate is a live webinar and podcast that drops every other week. Visit energyversusclimate.substack.com to register for updates and get exclusive access to join our live webinars, ask us questions, and engage with us directly. On today's show, we have Peter Terzakian joining us. Peter is an economist, investor, and author, and the executive director of the ARC Energy Research Institute. We'll be talking about Norway's divestment from Canadian oil sands companies and what it means for international investment in Alberta oil and gas along the road to energy transition and net zero. Now on to today's show. Hello and welcome everyone to our third live webinar from Quarantine Quarters here in Alberta. My name is Ed Whittingham. I'm a clean energy policy and project consultant. I'm joined by my webinar co-host Sarah Hastings-Simon joining us from Calgary. And as of last week, Sarah is a senior research associate at the Payne Institute for Public Policy at the Colorado School of Mines. Sarah, I feel like we broke the news of your new appointment on our Eventbrite page but uh, maybe you can give us a top line summary of what's your new role with the Pain Institute. Yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful, as you said. So um, at the Colorado School of Mines, which is a public uh, institution down in the U.S. In, in Colorado, in Golden, Colorado, focusing on energy, earth, and the environment. And so within the Payne Institute for Public Policy, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in particular thinking about metals and minerals of the energy transition, but of course, still thinking about transition topics more generally. So really excited to be there. They're doing great work and uh, excited to join the team. Great. And obviously your work will be complementary to what we're doing. And maybe we could focus more on the metals and minerals side on a, on a future episode. David Keith is our other co-host. He's a professor at Harvard University Engineering and at the Kennedy School. So to the, today's topic, on the last webinar, I remember telling you the story of uh, the energy super major executive who, uh, when I was having a lunch with that person, dismissed the fossil fuel divestment movement as nothing but uh, an irritant in the fossil fuel divestment movement being the movement to divest from producers of uh, fossil fuels out of concern of their carbon emissions. But then after dismissing the movement as a mild irritant, that CEO droned on endlessly over lunch uh, about nothing else. So at very least, divestment was a major irritant, not a mild one. So on today's topic, we are going to unpack that that, that very same topic. What's also been in the news recently is Norway's gargantuan sovereign wealth fund recently divested from four Canadian oil sands companies over climate concerns. And at a time when Alberta's companies are already facing huge challenges when it comes to accessing global capital. So we're going to use that as a launch pad to explore topics like fossil fuel divestment, energy transition, and the impacts of COVID-19 on the overall ESG movement or environment, social governance, sustainability movement. But instead of the three of us droning on endlessly about that topic, we've invited a very special guest who I'm sure is well known to all of you energy files out there, who I will introduce properly in just a moment. But right away, let's get to our first poll. Should Alberta Alberta's companies be worried about the fossil fuel divestment movement. Yes, the fossil fuel divestment movement uh, poses real risk to Alberta companies. No, it's insignificant and just a bunch of liberal BS. 
The money will flow. <laughs> business makes sense. Okay, let's introduce our special guest for today. His name is Peter Terzakian. He is an economist, an investor, and the executive director of Arc Energy Research Institute, as well as the chief energy economist and managing director at Arc Financial Corporation. He is also an author. His latest book, called The Investor Visit and Other Stories, Disruption, Denial, and Transition in the Energy Business. I'll also say about Peter is he has the coolest home-based museum that I've ever seen, all dedicated to the history of energy. And I'm one of the lucky few who's uh, had a personal tour of that museum from Peter. Let's look at the poll results, and then we're going to dive into what we think of these results. So. Here we are, panelists. Should Alberta's companies be worried about the fossil fuel divestment movement? The answer is clear and unequivocal. Yes, 90% of respondents. No, 10% of respondents are saying, just saying it's insignificant and a bunch of liberal BS. So, David, you kick us off. Tell us, what do you think of these poll results? What do you think yourself? about the risk of fossil fuel divestment to Alberta companies? I think the direct impact of the actual divestment money, re, divestment movement removing money, having a direct financial impact, I think it's very small. So in that sense, I would pick the no is just liberal BS. But I think that's really not the purpose. So I've had a chance to talk to lots of the students, for example, who are involved in the divest Harvard movement and, and others around the country. And my view is that they're pretty clear-eyed that, that they're not gonna really shut off flows of capital this way. Their goal is to get a political fight with leading political elites, like folks on Harvard's board or other big corporate boards about climate with the goal of moving larger climate legislation, which really does the deal. So my view is divestment is one of the strategies towards getting to a real powerful climate uh, uh, set of legislation. And in that sense, it may be important but in terms of directly shutting off capital, I think it's overrated. Great. Sarah? So I have a similar top line answer as David, but I think for some different reasons. I also think that the second part of that last question, the money will flow if business makes sense, is true. But I think the divestment movement has a role to play in, in sort of stopping that flow. And, and so the logic that that I follow on that goes goes as, as follows. So this is really the thin edge of the wedge of exposing the business case, basically, for divestment. And the idea that there are a lot, we know, of underlying biases in the market. People are making investments. Yes, they're looking at the economics, but they have a lot of ingoing hypotheses. I think we see this, for example, in what's played out over the last um, couple of years with the shale industry, where you kind of look at renewables on one hand and shale on the other, the shale industry had a lot easier time going to investors and saying, give us your money, we're, we're a good place to invest that money without having proof of being very profitable. And ultimately, in the end, we see that they, they weren't able to, whereas renewables had a, had a long uphill climb to, to make the case to investors that they should be, that they would be a good place to put, put their dollars, where I think they've, they've partially succeeded in that now. But basically, you have all these underlying motivations that are or underlying biases that are changing the way that, that people invest away from kind of perfect market conditions. And so ESG or whatever these kind of like altruistic motivations might be just enough to push people to divest. 
And then what happens looking backwards is certainly coming over the last few months with, with the COVID crisis, but even before then, you actually see that there is, in some cases, some of these divested portfolios are really doing better than the, than the non-divested portfolios. And that demonstration of the business case, the, the economic case, then opens up a huge space for bandwagon jumping and for people to come on, you know, whether or not they get to get to take the principled stance now, which happens to line up with the economic, economically better way to go, or if they're, you know, just closed minded and, and are just simply following the economics. I think that's how the main ways that, that we see divestment making a difference. And then the other that I think is in there a little bit too is yes, there is other sources of capital, but of course, the fewer sources you have, your costs are going to rise for that capital. So I think there is, you can have some amount of direct impact, even if there is other money there. But I think that, that again, that kind of indirect impact can make a big difference. Peter, I'd love to get your take on, it, a take on it as an investor yourself. So maybe comment specifically on the risk that the fossil fuel divestment movement poses to companies that you know very well. And perhaps you can speak more broadly about divestment in general, because divestment's been happening. And certainly it's not just climate related in the last few years. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's great. I've known all three of you for a long time. I'm honored to be on the program. So uh, fantastic. So listen, as an author, I always look at a question and have a tendency to analyze the words in detail. The question as stated is, should Alberta's companies be worried? So should be, that's future. I would argue to you that they should have been worried because the impact of the divestment movement has been dramatic, in my opinion. Divestment movement, I followed it for oh, pretty close to, I'd probably say seven or eight years ago, it really started to be germinated. It started to accelerate about five years ago, where we had major institutional consultants and others who went to some of the largest investors in the world, pension plans, university endowments, family offices, hedge funds, you name it, and basically said to them that, listen, oil is evil, it's causing climate change, you should get out of this stuff. And initially, from a dollar perspective, I would agree with David that it was de minimis. And probably in the big scheme of a multi-trillion dollar daily trading volumes is still de minimis. But the impact psychologically of this movement on the psyche of investors at a time when a number of factors were coming together to disrupt oil and gas has been huge. So, and I think, Sarah, one of the words or phrases that you used was the cost of the capital. As I see it, the divestment movement has been a carbon tax on the cost of capital. In other words, the ability to raise money. And I think the, the, the impact, as I said, should have been, or the industry should have been alerted to this five years ago because actually capital started to flee the sector uh, not only here in Canada, but in the United States and more broadly in the free market trading world of oil and gas in earnest around 2017. By 2018, liquidity in public market trading shares had dwindled. Uh, 2019, there was very little going on. In the parlance of finance, the multiples, the valuation multiples had compressed and not a lot of trading and certainly not a lot of equity issuances. So. You know, there's a lot of things going on at the time. And, you know, further to your question, Ed, there was a whole question about whether or not oil and gas companies can make any money. The investors were basically saying, show me you can make money. Uh, show me you can be profitable. And then on top of that was this whole burden of 
and the narrative of get out of this stuff, it's trashing the planet. And I think the two combined um, really have been damaging to the industry's ability to raise capital. Great. It, it, so it, just, just quickly, I realize is there's, there's a sort of tipping where I think it certainly makes it easier to raise capital for companies that are relatively better off in a low carbon sense. I think that in the end, if there's demand for fossil fuels, which in the end we have to fix by regulation, it seems to me, and innovation, which is demand from fossil fuels, some companies are going to supply them and those companies will get capital somewhere. But the divestment movement makes it relatively harder, as, as Peter said, yeah. premium on that capital and, and puts a discount on capital for low carbon. Right. Well, let me oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, so yeah, some, uh, to David's point, some companies will be able to get capital, but tell us, give us your sense, what about Alberta companies? If divestment started a few years ago, you used the phrase, the, the entire equity spigot has been shut off and capital flew the coop. Mm -hmm. Post-COVID, we know that no bank right now wants to lend to the sector, or very few, and they're not going to have cash flow right now until oil goes back to a significant price, like about 50 bucks a barrel. Yeah. So at that point, what, what is the challenge that severe for Alberta companies to access capital? And what does that mean for activity in the province? Yeah, well, first of all, let me preface it and say it's not only Alberta companies that are suffering from this, American companies that are, it's basically the companies that are in the independent oil company world, the free market world, which is about 20% of oil supply. Is in, is in the free market. We can come back to that notion because it's important, but I wanna expand on the point David made, which is about this idea that, okay, the divestment movement basically said, get out of oil and gas at large. The conjecture has been uh, that if you can demonstrate that you're an oil and gas company that has low carbon emissions, that therefore you should be able to raise capital. That was merely conjecture up to and including the, the pandemic. I think we were on our well, well on our way that I was, <clears throat> I had been arguing that the industry is going to bifurcate into two, the companies that understand that notion. So make money, deliver a better product, which is a lower carbon product. And if you can do that, then you are likely to be able to raise capital. If you don't do that, if you have high costs, you can't compete and you have high carbon intensity, it's unlikely you're going to be able to raise capital. Great. Let's Let's, let's move on and let's talk more broadly about divestment in the context of energy transition. And Peter, coming back to you, you're our special guest today. You've studied energy transition for the past 25 years. And uh, in your most recent book and your writings and, and uh, your speaking, you talk about three stages of transition. We've got disruption, denial, and transition. And that are domestic energy sectors in the early stages of transition. But there's still lots of people caught in denial and misunderstanding. So let's go back to the very basics. So what is transition anyway, if we yeah. happen to be in the early stages of transition? Yeah, I think that that's when I meet around boardroom tables and people throw around this term transition, I say, well, what are you talking about? Like, are we talking about transition from high carbon to low carbon? Okay, that's, that's one thing. Are we talking about transition from fossil fuels to other energy systems, like renewable systems or otherwise? And of course, there's overlap between the two, but they're not mutually exclusive. Then there's transition on the consuming end. Are we talking about transition with consumers buying smaller vehicles, putting in, are we transitioning from gasoline cars to electric cars? Like what, but I think, I think the biggest misunderstanding or the, it's not a misunderstanding, fuzziness is confusing 
decarbon, the transition to low carbon versus transitioning completely off false, uh, of oil and gas. I would say there's an important point in that for Alberta specifically. So I think one of the ways that, Al- that energy transition is poised to impact and I think already impacting Alberta is that we're going to transition from a period where we saw massive growth in new oil sands projects to one where we see almost no growth, maybe some expansions on existing projects and continued production of the barrels that are already coming out of our projects, right? And so I think too often when we talk about energy transition in Alberta, there's sort of this one side says, well, energy transition is happening. And so that means that we're going to have to rethink where the jobs are coming from. And then the other side says, well, no, but we're going to continue producing oil for a long time. So that's not the case. And, and really, both of those things are true, right? I mean, I think it's, it's going to take a long time, both just in terms of the lifetime of the projects that in the oil sands um, in Alberta, they, they're a long lifetime. Once they're built, the, the marginal costs are relatively low. So you do have an oil production that isn't going to continue for some length of time. But then at the same time, that oil production, while it may drive prices recover some, while it may drive royalties and while it may drive profits, it's not going to drive a lot in the way of jobs, right? Because we're not going to be seeing a lot of new construction and really the growth that that creates a lot of the, the job side of the wealth from the industry. And I think that point is something that is not, not often enough maybe articulated and not often enough understood in that, yes, it's, it's not untrue that, that oil is going to continue to bring economic benefit to the province, but what's going to happen much more quickly is this need for, for a pretty dramatic shift in where jobs are coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that uh, let's just sort of build off what we said earlier about divestment. We have environmental groups that were pushing divestment, influencing the financial community, and the two forces together, the financial community and environmental movements, really... Uh, put pressure on oil and gas companies to do two things. First of all, to transition from a mindset of growth at all costs, growth in production, to growth in profitability. So that was make me money. Don't just grow production at all costs. Okay, that, that imperative is still loud and clear and still there. And then wrapped up in that is make money and produce a, a cleaner barrel of oil. And so that's the whole ESG thing. And those two things, I, I would argue too, we were on our way to, to doing that pre-COVID. I think we're going to get back to it. But what's lost, what happens when you do that, I think, Sarah, you're, you're bang on, is that when you go from the mindset of production growth to making money, that employment necessarily ship, ships from a, yeah, basically contracts, right? Because you're going into a different modality. Yeah. And, and David, I'd love to get your take. So does this mean that we're transitioning away from high-paying jobs? Because certainly, and Sarah can speak to it, that some of the, the polling and focus group work uh, that's been done, the word transition will strike some as exactly that. You're transitioning against, uh, away from me and my place uh, in the, the workforce. And is this inevitable anyway with just what we're seeing in terms of the advance of technology and AI and remote sensing and drones and smartphone apps, uh, just replacing human labor with technology-based labor? The latter is very hard to say, but I think there's no question that for the next decade or two, a couple decades in Alberta, there will be less high-value added, high-value employment in oil. Very hard to see that being anything but true, even though the oil business will continue. I want to try and answer Peter's question about what the heck is transition anyway. The answer is, of course, there are a lot of different transitions happening in the world and the energy world at once. 
But for carbon, I think what we're really fighting about is how quick it is. So Peter was asking how far it goes. Some level, that's a simple answer. That's the physics answer. Carbon is a stock and flow problem in the, in the atmosphere. So in the end, if we want a stable climate, we have to bring that emission to zero, period. That really is kind of physics 101. But period can be a long time. And the political environmental battle is, are we doing that over 30 years or 60 or 90? And my, my hope would be that we can do it in something like 60, but it could well be longer than that. So I think there's no question we're not cutting emissions in half in the next 30 years, as the IPCC kind of suggests we need to to stay under uh, uh, 1.5. But, but to be clear, in the end, we do have to bring emissions to zero if you want a stable climate. There's no, there's no ifs or buts about that. Great. So question, quick, quick, I'd love quick answers from the panel, and then I want to talk about ESG in a post-COVID world. So we know that the energy sector is facing a tremendous amount of disruptors to go, disruptors to go back to Peter's framework of disruption, denial, and transition. We've got oversupply, we have substitution of fuels, we have financial industry disruption, cost of capital is infinite, or banks or investors are forcing companies to just work on cash flow. Then we had COVID, then we have the OPEC-Russian market share war. So looking at this divestment itself, is it just one of many? Do we think it's going to grow? Do we think that the fossil fuel divestment movement is just going to become increasingly insignificant? In spite of, I'll remind you of the poll results we got at the top of the call, where be mindful that 90% of our, our webinar viewers think it poses real risk to Alberta companies. Well, I, I'll say it again. I mean, the divestment has happened. Like, <laughs> this yeah. is not, this is, this is a, where we're talking in the past. I just want to back up a minute because we tend to think this stuff is only happening to the oil and gas industry. I mean, I, I tried being in the newspaper business, uh, even retail pre-pandemic. I mean, disruption from any dimension is shaking up every single industry on this planet from entertainment to real estate to whatever. So, to think that the oil and gas industry is going to be, or was going to be immune from any of this, oh, is, is incredibly naive. It's just that the forces of disruption and change in oil and gas are weighted more towards environmental type pressures and regulatory pressures potentially than other industries. Although even that could be debated. I think that the big question is really not about divestment itself, but about climate politics. So. We've got this period where the world is, is not looking towards big international agreements. We've got a rise of populism everywhere. But on the other hand, there's a real sense of growing urgency of action on climate. And that's not just me saying that. There really are poll results in many places like American Republicans that strongly suggest there is a, a greater interest in real action. And I think the big question is how much regulatory force will we see over the next, say, decade or two? And in a situation where we see really a lot of regulatory force driving innovation and driving the energy transition, that'll be different from some of these other transitions that Peter talked about, which are kind of internally driven by capital markets and innovation. This will be a, a, a transition driven by an environmental concern, by, by collective environmental regulation. Mm -hmm. We've not really experienced quite that before. And I think that's the pace of that is really set politically. And that's the big question. Yeah, and just jumping, to, to be clear, since COVID, we've had a pushback, tremendous pushback coming sure. from some segments of the energy industry against those regulatory sticks, saying now is not the time for it. Sorry, Sarah, I cut you off. 
That was okay. I was going to say, I mean, I think, I think there is a, there's a lot to point to in the past that has been regulatory driven, and, and I'm sure there will be a lot in the future. But there's also a lot of drivers now that are coming down to the economics, and those are hard to put back into the, into the box, so to speak, right? So the extent to which the progress in bringing costs down of solar over the past 10 years, just to pick one, I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a very strong force that's very hard to turn around again. So I agree that there's certainly, without government intervention and regulation, these things go very slowly and many of them never start. But then once they're started, they reach a point where, where they kind of continue. So, I mean, to bring that back to your question, Ed, I think that what that means to me is that the, the kind of diversification impact or the, excuse me, the, the divestment impact is, is already out of the box and there is no putting it back in. And, and that's actually part of why I find it so odd, this idea of this focus on whether or not Norway's actions was hypocritical. I sort of look at, look at that complaint and think about what I say to my eight-year-old twins when they complain about things not being exactly equal between them. Life's not fair. Like you, you may not like that you have this and your brother has that, but like that's just the way things are. So whether or not it's, it's hypocritical or an economic move, it's sort of like, well, I mean, maybe it makes us feel better to think one or the other, but I don't think it has any impact on what it results in or, or trying to change people's minds about doing it. Okay, yeah. let's, let's move on. I want to go back, Peter. You talked about there is a, a bifurcation within the energy industry between progressive companies that accept the transition is happening and they're trying to get ahead of the ESG curve and by ahead, ahead of it before it's forced on them by investors or it's forced on them by governments. And those that think that, uh, and I've characterized in the past, all we need to do is get the federal monkey off our backs and we'll go back to boom times. So tell me, if you use one branch of that bifurcation, you've called them progressive companies. Mm -hmm. What is a progressive company? And now in the midst of this COVID crisis, with the industry coming together and clearly pushing it back against proposed environmental regulations, is there still that split? Does a progressive company still exist now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, let's, 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 okay. I mean, bifurcation, yeah, it's a nice term. In any industry that is undergoing disruption, you basically call it winners and losers. Okay, that's, that's, that's just basically the accounts. As I said, not being unique to the oil and gas industry, what do progressive companies look like in general from MBA 101? Companies that make it through the valley of disruptions are one that, have the characteristics of uh, low-cost produ- low production and producing a better product. Yeah, I've said that earlier. It's, it's actually not that complicated. And so if we apply that now to the oil and gas industry and to your question, what do the progressive companies look like going forward? It's ones that can survive with lower price structures because it's not going to be the last time price goes up and down. And it's a very competitive world, especially now that our companies are competing with national oil companies that have access to capital, unlike ours. And number two, as I said, make a better product. And, and I, I tell people in the industry who say, well, we're all making a commodity. It's all the same. It's all hydrocarbons. I say, no, it's not all the same. You're actually being handed a gift of differentiation in product in a commodity. The differentiation is a lower carbon barrel versus a higher carbon barrel. And the only thing that's left to do from the perspective of the ESG is to be able to construct a framework to be able to prove to the satisfaction of consumers and environmental groups and policymakers that there is a difference between uh, higher carbon and lower carbon. 
David, Sarah, do consumers care about that differentiation? Can you brand oil and gas? And I'd add to that where carbon relates very closely to cost. And so it's very clear the winners will be the low cost, low carbon ones. Do the S and the G of ESG matter anymore? So I'm not an advertising guru. I'm sure advertising gurus can brand absolutely anything. But carbon is an atom. It doesn't care if it's produced by a progressive company or not. It makes absolutely no difference. And the fact is, on a well-to-wheels basis, the difference between these different oil production is quite small, of order 10 or 20%. I think this is an almost irrelevant battle. I think the big battle will be uh, societies fighting to figure out how much oil they're buying as they work towards decarbonize, doing all the hard work of switching to renewables or nuclear power, or whatever. That's the hard part. But I think the battle between different oils, I don't know, maybe people will successfully market super clean oil. It won't be clean, but marketers can market any nonsense. But I don't think it makes much difference to the core of this fight. I think it may make a little bit of difference to the relative competitiveness of some. The big fight is about how much carbon we use. Let, let me challenge you on that in a sense. I, I agree with you. It's actually the marketing, which is set up front, David. But let's take fair trade coffee. I mean, a coffee molecule is a coffee molecule or caffeine molecule, wherever it comes from the world whether it's Arabica or Colombian or whatever, that industry has done a significant job in branding coffee. And I would argue in our oil world, the Norwegians have been masters of branding themselves as clean and green oil. And everybody else, especially Canada, for whatever reason, they seem to paste with us as being dirty. So I, I agree that you can, I think you could, in theory, brand the oil, right? And I think you could get large buyers to, to require certain carbon standard, things like that. So I don't think the theory of it is wrong. But I agree, David, on your point around the wells to wheels. And I mean, I think that's interesting. Like if you go back 10 years ago, that was a big conversation, right? This idea that oil companies in Canada were putting forward, well, you shouldn't pay so much attention to the upstream emissions because the total wells to wheels is this much and the difference is so small. And of course, nobody talks about that anymore. Like when's the last time you saw saw a wells to wheels argument for, for Canadian oil? And so I think that to me, is the is the more fundamental problem the coffee people still are still want the caffeine at the end of the day but we're moving into a world where people don't want the carbon and so that's kind of the hard target that you run up again i think there's room to say yes there's room to compete for that last barrel and carbon is going to be part of it but also in a world that's increasingly volatile and uncertain as far as the demand going forwards Investors are going to be increasingly looking for projects that are can be um, brought online quickly and at a small scale. And those are things that the oil sands, for example, exactly are not, right? That that sort of would be far down the line, whether or not you could get the carbon down or not. So just, just, that is, I think, a, a, one of the main challenges that I see for making that that carbon case for, for any oil. Go ahead, Peter. I, 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 I agree with you, sir, except that I think we can hopefully agree, certainly from a wells to wheels perspective, it is consequential to lower carbon. I mean, we are on a race to try and reduce every ton of carbon out of the system. And so I actually think it is important that companies here are saying net zero by 2050. I think it is important to get people to think about the vehicle choices they buy because the per kilometer emissions of a big vehicle or a small one the dynamic range in emissions per kilometer is four to one between a big SUV and a small vehicle. So these decisions, whether it's at the wellhead or whether it's in 
on the consumption side, and everything in between is hugely consequential if our aim in our transition is to decarbonize as quickly as possible. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And, and I wouldn't want to say, you know, I do think that bringing down the emissions of the production that we have is important, right, as you say. So it's a, it's a both, it's not an either or. And it probably comes back a bit too to then those timescales that, that David was talking about. To what do you do in the, in the short term and what do you do in the midterm and then the long term? And then the fact that we, I think, across society disagree on, you know, what we mean when we say that mid and long term. Yeah, just to, to go for some agreement, I think there will be some differentiation between oil companies, and some of that's real, for sure. But I think the central street fight about climate will be the flow of capital to reduce demand for fossil fuels. And all the really, you know, electricity is now turning easy with a spectacular success of solar and wind, but there's lots of parts of the energy system that are really hard. And it's decisions we make there that I think will be the center of the fight. Yeah, and I think we all agree we want the better performers to win that competition for capital. I think it's still unclear in my mind if the S and G really mattered. Perhaps we can get to it when we get to the questions. Yesterday, we talked about a new S, and that is security. And is that going to matter increasingly? How do you price it in? But I'm going to put pause, press pause on that, because I do want to move us to questions. We got 23 minutes left. We got a ton of questions So here is one from Richard. If publicly traded companies do suffer from divestment and are therefore less able to supply petroleum, will we see NOCs, nationalized oil companies, replace them as suppliers? Does this do anything to improve global GHG performance? If we have more NOCs that are dominating the market as opposed to international non-NOC companies. I guess it depends on who, right? I mean, there are certainly NOCs out there that have very low carbon footprints because of the nature of the of the oil that they're producing. So I, the oil just springs from the ground and you don't actually have to do much to produce it. The differences are just not that big. So, I mean, it, it, implicit in that question is the idea is, is divestment kind of making a mistake because it's just going to push things to NOx and that's really not got lower emissions? The answer is if that's all it was doing, then it would be making a mistake. But the purpose is to get the political wheels turning so the big money gets spent to reduce demand for fossil. I, I agree with that, David, but I, I want to challenge your notion here that there isn't a wide difference. I mean, the dynamic range is like, say, 90% of the world's oils range between 20 kilograms of carbon per barrel to 180. So that's like a nine to one dynamic range. Like, it's huge. Whether you get your oil from a a low carbon source or a high carbon source. I get it's it's not inconsequential. And by the way, two other points. The the NOCs, a lot of them, I mean I've been to these countries, many of them, like they're not transparent. We don't know these numbers. There's a lot of opacity. That's number one. And and number two is that it goes beyond emissions. I mean I think we need to be looking at environmental sustainability holistically. I mean I can show you horror pictures that I've taken of some of these oil fields abroad, and they're not pretty. For sure. Sure. So, Peter, on that, Norway, we had a bit of a chat about that yesterday. (laughs) So it's got the sovereign wealth fund that seems to be holier than thou and says, Mm -hmm. these companies good, your company's no good. But I think Norway's strategy is simply to sell pretty standard oil and gas abroad to use that revenue to dry to green at society as much as possible, including being funded by the sovereign wealth fund. What do you think about Norway? Is it hypocritical of Norway to take this stance? Well, there's, there's two. It's hypocritical, yes, 
I mean, I'm kind of disappointed in the whole thing, but I don't want to dwell on it. Lovely country, lovely people in there. My question is, why did they choose two or three Canadian companies out of a list of 300 they own? Because you can go to the website and see and choose to single us out. Furthermore, they singled out the companies that have actually stated verbally that they are striving to be net zero by 2050. I looked on that list of 300 companies. I'm going, I'm just shaking my head. Like none of these companies or a large fraction of those companies don't have any intent to do this thing. So why are we being singled out? That's my question. Yeah, I mean, two, two thoughts on that. So one, I think if Norway had said, hey, we're a country that is very invested in oil on the basis of our economy, and therefore we want to diversify our wealth into other areas, that would make a lot of sense. And I don't uh-huh. think that's hypocritical, right? That's an investment strategy. So, so I think there's a clear underlying business proposition for that. If I want to try to, without sort of judging if it's the right or wrong thing to do, if I want to try to say, you know, why might they have chosen those? I think that from a divestment and wanting to send a message perspective, actually choosing companies that have made some kind of commitments. And I would argue they've made commitments, but let's be clear, they've made promises that are relatively vague without very strong, you know, plans behind them and, and don't really meet to me what it means to actually have a, have a commitment to net zero. Well, I'm just going to pause you on yeah. that. Okay. You can question whether there's a level of commitment. I'm not going to get into that, but they have made a commitment. And a lot of those companies in the list of 300 have said nothing. So why are we being, at least the intent and the, the thing, the goodwill is there. And I know a lot of people in the companies that have been blacklisted. And I do believe they have good intentions. And, and let's, let's let them prove it before we trash them. I wouldn't say they don't have good intentions. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that they are, you know, but, but yeah. I think that their good intentions are not matched by the reality of the physics of what they're trying to promise to do. And the fact that they don't have a real plan that shows how they're going to deliver on that is, is well, really I, I think that that was in the works. Okay. We, we can debate you're, you're taking the position of I don't believe it till you show me, but I'm looking at the, I'm just saying, why are we singled out amongst these other companies that I know have said zero? I think you're right. I mean, the answer is like the answer Sarah gives her two kids. The answer is it's unfair. And it, it's, it's a political dynamic that got us there, and it is unfair. It's insulting. Uh, it's not unfair. It's just ridiculous. But, but I think that, that the, the bottom line strategically is how much is it really meaningful for oil companies to decarbonize when the central product is a product we can't use if we want a stable climate? Okay, but uh, let me I, I, I agree. But now you're getting into the, the line that I've used over the years. Fossil fuels don't emit anything. People who burn fossil fuels emit a lot. Sure. And the consumers will do So where is the consumer culpability in Norway's finger pointing? Like, as far, I didn't even check, but I can guarantee you, they probably have ownership in some of the largest automakers in the world. You don't have that to making, that are making That are making CO2 generators on a daily basis. Totally agree. You don't need to convince me. And, and again, this isn't about people's intentions. There's lots of wonderful people and my neighbors here in Alberta who work in these companies who are sincere, reasonable people. The issue is about how much we as a society can collaborate to stop wrecking the planet's climate. And that is fundamentally not about making choices in between different oils. It's about making the investment to move our energy system off fossil fuels. Okay, I'm going to be a traffic cop. I want to get to a live questioner. So we're looking for a question from Jeff 
to do with credits and equity markets. Yeah, thanks. So I'm, I'm in Edmonton right now. I'm a PhD student and I've been thinking about divestment for a while. And one thing that I get confused about thinking about divestment is how we talk about both institutional investors. So that that's like uh, university endowments, retirement funds, but then you also, but then you have the uh, credit markets. So banks and how banks are lending these companies money. So if we're talking about the actual fiscal impact on divestment for companies, what's the, what's the relative importance of these two? And I think another one of the questioners brought up Larry Fink's letter. So how are, like when you guys are thinking about uh, divestment, how do, you, how do you weigh the importance of these two? And do you think, especially with Larry Fink's letter, how the, uh, the actual ability of oil companies to get, to get credit, how is that gonna be affected? Great. Peter, is there a special guest you want to jump in? I'm not going to paraphrase it, but the answer to your question, maybe I can talk about it, is the credit markets. This is a really important notion in the context of the pandemic, because there's three sources of capital that make an oil and gas company function. One is their cash flow, which has been reduced to basically zero in this environment. The other one is equity, access to equity. And we've talked about that already. That's been reduced to zero over the last couple of years, effectively. And the third is debt. And there, even before the pandemic, a few months, like in early, uh, late 19, early 20, there was still some big debt deals being done. What bank is going to want to lend to this industry now post-pandemic? So basically, in the free market, we have a situation where the arms of an oil and gas company are now cut off. And if you... The big issue, and this gets, I just want to bring it back to this notion of uh, energy security and national oil companies, which we talked about 10 minutes ago, is that state-owned oil companies uh, have the upper hand now because a Western free market oil and gas company without access to capital cannot compete with state-owned oil companies. Okay. Thanks. Let's leave it at that. I want to go to a question about subsidies for conventional oil production. So we know that right now this crisis is really the employment issues, particularly it's hitting the conventional oil side more than the oil sand side right now. Uh, so the question is, is there any political or public appetite to end corporate subsidies to the conventional energy sector? And if so, what sort of effects would this have on the sector? So subsidies is one of those uh, never-ending debates as to does the fossil fuel sector still receive subsidies? If it does, what kind of subsidies? And every year I see movement with, I see lots of pushback to try to end them, but not end subsidies for renewables. So coming again to you, Peter, and then we'll hear from David and Sarah. What do you think of this issue of subsidies? Well, I, whenever I get this question, and we get it quite often, I go, what are the subsidies? Like there used to be subsidies I don't know, 30 years ago for drilling in the Arctic or whatever, mm -hmm. and for, for exploration incentives up to a certain point. But under the new modalities of extraction, I mean, I, there are no subsidies. I, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, there are accounting artifacts of how you handle depreciation, but a lot of them are no different than any other industry that have uh, big capital expenses. So I, I, I don't know. I'll just leave it at that. I don't know what the subsidies are. I, I would agree with Peter completely. I think the environmental movement is often claims there's huge fossil fuel subsidies, but unless you count the subsidies as the absence of a carbon price, which is a different kind of thing, it's a different question. 
in the normal market operations now, most in the sort of Western company developed nations don't have substantial fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, they're just not there. There are large fossil fuel subsidies in some parts of the world that are reductions in consumer prices, but those are typically in poorer countries and developing countries, quite a different thing. So there, there's a fair total still, but that's really quite different. I think the more dangerous thing to think about going forward as a consequence of this pandemic, and as I said, the cutting off of the capital to the Western oil companies, is that by definition, state-owned oil companies, which produce 80% of the world's oil, by definition, state-owned means they're all subsidized. And as I said, a free market company without access to capital cannot compete against state-owned. So, you know, we've actually got an energy security issue looming in the future, but that's a whole other subject. <laughs> I think it's a... I think that's a really interesting point, though, Peter, in terms of if you say that coming out of this, you're going to find the market making it very hard for the non-state-owned companies to compete, then what do we do about it, right? And I think that the wrong answer would be to say, well, we just throw a lot of money at, you know, our oil companies here and let them let them figure it out. That Some people are advocating that. I don't think anyone on this call is now. But I think that that comes back to when I look at, like, what's the right kind of support? It has a lot of questions that sit behind it, right? Which is, who do we actually want to support if, we, if we're looking, say, within Canada? Who are we trying to support? How do we support the workers that are being affected by this? What does that look like? How do we support an energy industry where I'm using energy broadly? How do we, obviously, we think that it is the government's role to support workers. We think it's the government's role to ensure energy security. I think there's a lot of principles that many people agree on, but then as soon as you start talking about what that can look like, that's where things start diverging quite a bit. And, and I think some people are disingenuous and then using that to say, well, let me now put forward the proposals that I always wanted. Like I, I see that in some of this suspending of environmental monitoring and stuff like that. But I think there's some really interesting discussion probably for another, another call as I noticed we're at the end of our, getting close to the end of our time here, but an interesting discussion of what does that support look like and what is the best way to do that? Keeping in mind the, the labor questions and the, and the, the, energy security. But I think it's also really important that we don't go backwards kind of on investors. And the whole idea of a market is that investors make money when things go well, and they don't make money when, when it doesn't. And I don't think that's the role of the, of the state to make sure that they're always coming out on top. But I think the fair question for Western democracies is, like, where does the last barrel come from? So if, we're, if you buy the fact we're going to gradually transition away from fossils uh, driven by climate, we can argue about the time. But I think we might all agree that whatever is the time, we don't want that last barrel to come from a hideously corrupt, abusing people, making local pollution company. We'd rather have it come from better run companies that do a better job locally. Yeah. And I, I, so I, I agree with that. I still don't know how you price it into the barrel. I know how you price carbon into a barrel, and then you can create differentiation based on that price differentiation. But I don't know how you price ethics into a barrel. I've never heard a convincing argument for that. But what I want to do is, we've been alluding to it, I want to get unpack the security question a little bit. I want to take one more question, and I think that's about all we're going to have time for. So we've been talking about climate as a big driver for change. Increasingly, we think security is going to be a driver for change, and maybe to ESG, we need to add another S, which is security. And especially in a globalizing world right now when, when our supply chains are getting shorter and we're actually repatriating parts of our supply chain. So a uh, supply chain, let's, let's talk about security. Where is it going to be? Is it going to be a driver and how do we address it? 
Uh, I think it's going to be a big issue. And I think from the perspective of transitioning and decarbonizing in, in, in an interesting way, it's a good thing because in my book, The Investor Visit and the whole energyfile.org website, I talk about the forces of change, the forces that actually lead to transition. There are six of them, but two of the most important ones are environment and the other one is geopolitics. I can tell you that historical transitions do not happen with merely one out of the six or two out of the six. You need a collusion of different forces. Energy security was something that made us transition, certainly after the 1970s oil price drops. There was a whole get off oil movement. We pushed oil out of the power generation markets and introduced nuclear power. That was a huge transition. It encouraged uh, the build out of public transportation and rail networks, especially in places like Japan, Europe. So I'll just say that we may be coming out of this pandemic with two of the big forces of change, environment and energy security. And interestingly, for the uh, benefit of a next program <laughs> that you may invite me to, we can talk about how that would work. Okay. Yeah, I would, I would strongly agree with that. And I mean, to the list that, that Peter gave of things that came out of that oil crisis, I mean, we also saw a deployment of renewables across the U.S. and increased energy efficiency as well. So yeah. I think renewables are a, are a local resource. And so I'll, I'll tee up our other next podcast around what's the rest of what goes into that renewable supply chain? Well, there are a lot of metals and minerals that go into that that are in the ground and that are certainly in the ground in the, in the U.S. and Canada. And we saw that even going into the pandemic, right, with the U.S. partnering with Canada and Australia to say, hey, we need to think about the supply chain for these critical materials as, as they start to become larger parts of our energy yeah. supply. So I think there's a lot of interesting discussion there and, and thankfully a lot of opportunity for some of those jobs and, and economic um, challenges that we were talking about earlier. I'll, I'll offer two comments on, on security. So one is that I think one of the big security concerns is that if, if carbon-related, climate-related concerns drive oil production down globally, which I hope they will, one of the things will be a lack of income to the, to the, the, to the Middle East that could have profound political consequences there, destabilizing consequences for the regimes. That, that's something that my colleague at Harvard, Megan O'Sullivan, has written a lot about, and I think it's pretty real. The second one is that if we're serious about decarbonizing with intermittent renewables, with solar especially, that means running a lot of long distance uh, transmission lines because it doesn't in the long run make any sense to be installing lots of solar, say here in Alberta, it makes sense to install it in much sunnier places and move it with 10 gigawatt lines. It turns out to be much more economically effective to do that. There are lots of places where people have looked at that. In general, you want to move the solar from places it's cheap to make to places where it goes. But power lines have no storage whatsoever. They're inherently unstable things. And if you move them across political boundaries, that raises a new set of energy security concerns that I think will be real. But my view is the kind of old energy security concern about like lack of access to oil in a world with lots of technology for producing oil and gradually reducing demand, I don't see as a problem. But I see one thing, well, just one other thing that came to mind, I was just reading this morning, a study that an early study coming out of Berkeley showing that there has been an increase in installations of diesel diesel generators in response to the power cuts in California. So I think that also just serves it as a reminder is that, you know, while there are a lot of examples of things being pushed in the sort of right direction from a climate perspective, um, things can also be pushed in the other direction too. And so that's where policy and, and being thoughtful about the solutions and um, alternatives is really important because you can see those security concerns uh -huh. kind of flip you where you don't want to be going. 
Okay. Yeah, we're going to get in. You, you're all going to be limited like 30-second answers. Okay. Uh, but uh, we're going to go from energy security to export capacity and perhaps a heated summer along the Trans Mountain right away. Andrew, are you there? Andrew may have rung off. Okay. I'm going to take his question. He's got a question around uh, Alberta's energy minister, Sonia Savage, was in the news yesterday for making uh, for comments about protests around TMX and essentially said it's a good time to build a pipeline because protesters can't gather. So I'm going to use that to pivot. We're probably going to have a heated summer of protests as this TMX construction uh, plows ahead. What does that do in terms of divestment and uh, the concerns that investors have in Canada? Is it just going to inflame those concerns? Is there a way of saying, if you're the Liberal government and you still want that capital to flow and you made that decision, we own the pipeline, how do you uh, address those concerns? So 30 seconds or less, please. And uh, last word will be to Peter. So uh, Sarah, go ahead. I mean, in 30 seconds, I'll make two points. One is if we want to be the last barrel standing for our superior management of our resources, I think we need to be thoughtful about, you know, how we're managing them and, and not being going down that kind of pathway. Um, and the second, I think a lot of the kind of pipeline discussion I put into a similar space as the divestment that we were talking about earlier. You know, I think on its own, it's somewhat limited in what it can accomplish. But I think it's part of sending a broader or shifting the market in a broader way. So I do think it's something that will have an impact. Okay, David. I think um, it's really hard to judge what happens with protest. I could see that in a kind of a post-COVID recession, a kind of bitter recession, especially in the U.S., I could really imagine a level of protest we haven't seen since the late 60s that are, that are pretty ugly. I don't look forward to that. I think that'll spill over. Those things tend to go back and forth between nations. And I think that'll mostly be protest about stuff that's not climate, but climate stuff will get shaped as part of that protest if it happens. Great. Yeah, thanks. Well, I, th I think, well, thanks for having me, first of all. It's been a delightful conversation. Protests, as it relates to divestment, I'll come back to the original notion. Divestments have already happened. So I'm not sure if it's, if it's really, it's just all moot, in my opinion. Uh, I think the more important thing is that we do have winning companies here in the discussion that we had about winners and losers, progressive laggard. We've got a lot of potentially winning companies here. They were just starting to show it before the pandemic. I think they're going to show it afterward. The challenge to keep the protesters at bay is actually to convince the public and beyond stakeholders beyond that we do have winning companies. And that is a huge challenge that we need to, we need to address. Great. All right, well, let's end on uh, a hopeful note that we do have uh, mm -hmm. good companies here, and we hope that they are going to win, both on the environment front, on the whole ESG front, and absolutely going out and capturing market share for that last battle. Okay, big thank you to Peter for being such a wonderful guest, being so generous with your time. Thank you very much, and if this continues as a thing, we'll uh, look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks for listening to Energy Versus Climate. The show is created by David Keith, Sarah Hastings-Simon, and me, Ed Whittingham, and produced by Eva Vueni-Jescu. Our title and show music is The Wind-Up by Brian Lips. Sign up for updates and exclusive webinar access at energyversusclimate.substack.com. Interact with us live every other week and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen.